0: and forge ahead. So get ready to conquer your fears, heal any trauma, lead with your heart, and elevate your life with grit and grace.
1: Hello, welcome back to the True Grit and Grace podcast. And as you know, we are all about resilience and I love sharing tips and tools on resilience with you So today's guest couldn't be more perfect because she is the queen of resilience. Right here on the show, I have Dr. Taryn Marie. She has done a pre and post doctorate in neuropsychology. She is the chief resilience officer at Resilience Leadership. She's an executive coach, keynote speaker, author. She's a podcast host. She's a philanthropist. She's a mom. She's an athlete. What doesn't she do really? But she's really, right now, especially with what we're going through, on a mission to support others in appreciating their strengths to reach their full potential and really leverage their resilience to live a life of purpose. And so, Dr. Taryn Marie, you're just such a dear friend of mine. I love you, girl. Thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome to the show.
2: Got a mutual admiration society going here. Uh, I know we get to get in, we
1: start talking, we get on the phone and we just can't stop talking. I could talk to you all day.
2: Same. I had to apologize to your husband the other day because he couldn't, (laughs) you know, he was (laughs) calling. And that was one more thing, one more thing. Just one more thing. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) Well, one of our mutual friends introduced us and it was like, we instantly connected. And I love all that you share. And the first time before I ever got to talk to you on the phone, I watched one of your interviews and I was just like, my jaw was dropped the whole time because I was in such awe of you and what you share. And you're so freaking brilliant. I just hang on your every word. So can you you please tell everybody who's listening, like how you even got started, how you became the chief resilience officer. Like this is what you do for a living. It's your passion and you're fortunate. You get to do and live your passion.
2: So can you tell us how you got started and got to be where you are today? Yeah, I would love to. So I'm going to tell this story in two ways. There's a story that I typically tell, and I'll tell you that story. And then there's also several more personal stories. And, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to someone the other day you know he was looking through my background and he said were you so interested in resilience because when i was a competitive swimmer in high school i was pretty good i wasn't bad i was going to like states and you know maybe thinking about nationals and then the summer before my senior year of high school i was diagnosed with thoracic outlet syndrome my arms started going numb in swim practice you know what it's like when your arm goes numb or your leg goes numb. Mm -hmm. It's like, no matter what you do, you just like, you just can't move it and it's pins and needles. And so i just feel my arms going numb in practice. And that really for a long time was the end of my swim career, you know, as I knew it. And I had an exploratory surgery at Johns Hopkins in 2005 and was able to get back some of the vascularization in my arms through that surgery. So I'm back to swimming open water races
1: Wow. I have to connect you with my friend, Brian Maneo, who has been on the episode. I think he's like episode number eight or something. I don't know. I'll check. But he does open water swimming. He keeps trying to get me out in the water because that's a whole other
2: (laughs) ball game of swimming. Yeah, It is. So I went from being a really promising swimmer and swimming for a decade after my senior year, I had to completely stop. And the thing with thoracic outlet syndrome is I'll take my pulse for you. If you took my pulse down here, like resting, you know, you can have my pulse. And if you put my arm up over my head before I had surgery, my pulse would completely disappear. So it was completely cutting off the vascularization to my arms and hands when I was swimming. And so, you know, he said, was the reason that you became interested in resilience because you went through this hard time? And I thought, I don't think so. But, you know, maybe I have to think about it, right? And then I thought about, I'm going to sound like a real hard luck case for a minute, you know, but then I thought about always knowing that I had some kind of like learning disability that made things harder for me. I was in a really lowest reading group until I was in third grade. Well, I was diagnosed with dyslexia.
1: Me too. I mean, I wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia, but I was in a lower reading group and I just read my book for Audible and I swear I was like, maybe I have dyslexia. I, I can't even read my own book.
2: <laughs> I swear, I don't know. I think wrong that with me. process, not to overnormalize it because we can overnormalize things, right? There are times in life where, you know, we want the grit and the grace of like people saying like, we know you had a hard time, right? It's like when you have kids, I'm really digressing for a moment, but it's like when you have kids, <laughs> you know, and you're up all night, and then your friend comes to you, and they're like, "Yeah, I know that must be hard. I just got a puppy," mm-hmm. and you're like, mm. "You know, <laughs> so <laughs> you're all, mm, yeah, puppy, okay." <laughs> right. And you know, I used to get so mad about that, like, "Oh, puppy's not the same." But you know, as humans, we want to relate to each other. Mm-hmm. We want to relate to each other. And so, my friend who has the puppy isn't trying to say my life isn't hard. She just wants to, or he wants to say, whoever. They want like, to "I understand. You know, I get it. Right." So when I say, "Oh, I know what that's like," because yeah. So my whole point is, I don't want to say that your whole <laughs> experience wasn't difficult. And I think reading an entire book out loud for long days on end is taxing for anyone. Whether you have a learning okay, disability. okay. So I'm okay. I just want to say just want okay. To say. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I feel better. Good.
1: <laughs> we'll so see what how it sounds though. Okay. What all about. See, so so you guys, this is why we talk for hours on end, because we do this. So I'm yes. going to be quiet so you can just go <laughs> <it>. <laughs> no,
2: I hope you won't be quiet. So I went through graduate school and I did the whole thing. And, you know, I had a learning disability the whole time. I had a stalker in high school, you know, which we can talk more about if we want to. That Yeah, because
1: we've talked about this on the phone. Yeah. But yeah. I've been stalked before and it's really scary. It's really scary. You don't ever feel safe. You're always looking over your shoulder. For me, I got to the point where I wouldn't leave my house. The curtains were always drawn and then I didn't even feel safe in my own home. So yes, please talk about that because there's going to be somebody listening that is going through that experience right now and
2: they need to know
1: Mm -hmm. how you got through it.
2: Yeah, good. I'll definitely talk about that. It took a long time for me to talk about that you know, if I finished sort of the first line of questioning, and then, you know, I was also in a first marriage with my initial husband, you know, and that marriage was abusive. And so I think for so many of us, we don't just face one challenge in our lives. In fact, if somebody gave us just one challenge, we'd probably be like, great, you know, I can nail this, right? But I love Amberly. what you talk about wasn't just about you being in a motorcycle accident. It was about than the 34 surgeries that you went through and how you lost so much of who you'd been before and you lost your livelihood for a period of time and you had to rebuild, right? So we go through these constellations of challenges, these complex challenges where it's not just one thing, one moment where we say, ah, because I'm in the lowest reading group or because it's scary for me to read out loud or because I have this weird vascular diagnosis and I, you know, want to be a competitive swimmer, I become resilient, right? It's a continuum. It's facing a host of things.
1: It is. And, you know, adversity doesn't discriminate. doesn't matter who you are. We all go through hard times. And I think it's when we can get out of that mindset of, oh, it's only me. I'm the only one going through this. Why me? Uh Instead of knowing that we all go through hard times.
2: That's right. Yeah. And I think it's so easy to ask ourselves that question where we say, why me, right? Mm -hmm. Why is this happening? Why me? And then there's a professional surfer and I forget his name. You might know who it is, Amber Lee, but he was surfing and got hit by a wave in a way that made him become paraplegic and he couldn't Mm -hmm. surf anymore. And he said, you know, I was asking myself, why me, why me? And then one day I said, why not me? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, sure, we don't want bad things to happen to us. But the idea is that none of us are immune Mm -hmm. from challenge, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, lots of challenges in my life, which I am now comfortable talking about, I hid them for a long time, which was, I think it was, it was a disservice to myself because I was keeping part of myself back. And it was a disservice to other people because I was demonstrating a picture Of who I was that wasn't helpful, that said Mm -hmm. to other people, you need to be flawless and perfect in order to achieve. And so I think when we hold back the challenges that we faced and we don't share those with people openly, we send this message that we create an impossible standard. Yeah, Yeah.
1: And you know what? Nobody's perfect. Well, I don't know anybody that's perfect. And people can't relate to other people who haven't gone through something. That's and when right. you finally meet somebody who has been in an abusive relationship, you go, Oh yeah. Okay. We get each other. Cause I've been there too. You mm-hmm. meet someone who's been through a terrible divorce. You're like, Oh, I've been there. I've done that mm-hmm. too. Yeah. We connect on a deeper level. You know, our stories may be different, but there's that common thread where we can connect and it's a stronger bond. And so I think it's important that you share it at first with people who you really trust because that's important too, not to just go, oh, let me just share all my stuff with everybody because there is a lot of healing before, for me anyway, there was a lot of healing and a lot of crawling into my little cave to heal and going to therapy and reading books and a lot of journaling before I could be open and talk about some things that I've been through.
2: Yeah. I think that's exactly right. You know, something that's been meaningful for me is I remember hearing Alice Siebel, the author on NPR, gosh, it's probably been close to a decade and a half ago now, right? Mm -hmm. When she wrote The Lovely Bones. Do you remember that book, The Lovely Bones? Yeah. And they made it into a movie. So beautiful. The Lovely Bones about a girl. It's a bit gruesome, actually. Oh. It's a really beautiful story of healing with her family. It's about a girl who goes missing And she's actually, I'm not giving away anything to you listeners. (laughs) If you haven't seen the movie, this is apparent early on, but she's killed by a serial killer and she goes to heaven and she watches her family from heaven. And that's what the book's about is what happens to her family as she looks down on them from heaven. And Alice Siebel wrote another book, which was her own memoir called Lucky, which was about her own rape. And the rape of other women that she knew and her personal experience, of course, as it does, influenced, you know, her in the writing of this novel of this, you know, fiction book, The Lovely Bones. And I remember her being on NPR and and them sort of saying, well, you know, isn't this writing cathartic for you? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people say that to me, too, when I'm writing and I say, you know, writing is cathartic. That's (laughs) true. But cathartic writing doesn't necessarily have a place or a space in public consumption, right? Like if I'm going to write an article about one of the challenges or many of the challenges that I've been through, I'm in a place now, to your point, where I've done my own work, I've done my healing, and now I'm trying to write a compelling story. Now I'm trying Mm -hmm. to tell you the story in a way that you can relate to it. You know, I'm not telling the story to figure it out or to heal Mm -hmm. because I've already done so much of my own healing. I think it's important for your listeners, for people listening, you know, that if you're thinking about telling a story, a resilient story or a story of your own vulnerability, you know, for the first time, that we're early in your process of healing, if you will, I think it's important to choose people that you believe have earned the right to mm-hmm. hear that That's and,
1: powerful. Thank you. Yeah. I yeah. love that way of looking at it. Yeah. Because you are vulnerable if you're sharing a story where you've overcome something or sometimes when you're still struggling through something. So mm-hmm. I like that.
2: Yeah. So choosing people who have earned the right to hear your resilient story or to hear your story of vulnerability, because those people's reaction to us, right? And to you early on, it's powerful, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, how we feel about ourselves and that story often hinges on how do those first couple people that we tell that story react, right? And I always say, if somebody doesn't react well, a parent, a sibling, you know, don't let that stop you, right? Yes, I couldn't agree The next person who you think has earned the right, because there are people who are going to have the capacity to support you. And if someone doesn't react well, it's not about you, even though it feels like it's about you, it's about their capacity and where they are in this moment to be able to support you.
1: That's such great advice, because it is hard when you open up and share something that maybe is scary for you, or you're not sure how to handle it. And you go to someone and they don't do anything,
0: mm-hmm.
1: sometimes when they don't do anything is even worse because it makes you feel that you're not worthy enough to be cared for.
2: That's right. You know, That's right. it sends a message about our worth or our value, mm-hmm. right? or if some, you know, if we feel ashamed, what happened, you know, I felt ashamed for such a long time that when I was getting my master's degree, I realized I had post-traumatic stress disorder, that I met all of the diagnostic criteria in the DSM for then. I felt so ashamed that I had this mental health, you know, diagnosis, right. Or mm-hmm. um, I felt ashamed that the person that I was married to, you know, initially had been physically abusive to me, like that was my fault. And so The initial people that we go to, I think oftentimes color how we feel about our story or ourselves when we first get the courage to do that. But then- Let me ask you, how do you find
1: the courage, speaking on abusive relationships, how do you find the courage if there's someone out there listening? Because it is so common, more common than we probably even realize And I don't know the statistics, but of people that are in abusive relationships, whether it's verbally abusive or physically abusive, and sometimes verbally abusive is harder than the physical abuse. I mean, I've been both, and sometimes the verbal abuse is a little harder to get over. How did you find the courage to get out of an abusive relationship? Because I know for me, there was a lot of shame there. I was scared. and I didn't want anybody to know. How did you
2: get out of that? Yeah. Gosh, what I've got to say is a precursor is for people who have not been in an abusive relationship from the outside looking in, it is so hard to understand how the person who Mm -hmm. is call it receiving the abuse right and sometimes it goes both ways too but oftentimes there's one person who is I'll call the aggressor right and in my case it was very clear that very one sided in terms of the aggression and it's so hard to think like how could anyone think that's their fault you know and I get that I get that perspective and yet also having been on the inside of one of those relationships looking out it's like the easiest thing to believe in an abusive relationship that it's your fault and you know why is that i think as humans we love to believe that we have a span of control you know we love to believe that we can impact our environment in meaningful and positive ways and we can and so i think when we're in a relationship with someone where they are abusive towards us they are you know unkind they are demeaning they're degrading whether it's physically abusive or emotionally abusive i think our little human brains so well meaning with the little brains but you know i think it's our way of trying to control our environment and say well if it's my fault, if I'm the common denominator, then I should be able to create change. I should be able to make this better. I have agency or control in some way to try to change this. And so for a long time. Or just things will be different. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Because then, you know, I say this with all due respect, but I think people that are abusive, in my experience, it was with a man, they're a lot like Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's patients. And I mean this with all due respect, but like, you know, when someone has Alzheimer's, right, they have these moments of lucidity where like things are really clear, you know, and all the kind of fog clears away. And you really do feel like you've got that person back for a moment. Mm. And that also happens, I believe, it happened in my relationship, right, in abusive relationships, where he would have these moments of lucidity where he would cry and he would understand how he had hurt me. And, oh, my God, how could he ever hurt someone that he loved so much? And he would be so embarrassed and so shattered, you know, that he had ever done that. And I would think, yes, you know, I got through to your point. It's going to get better. It's going to change. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. so there's also a lot of continuous belief, right, that things will get better. You know, and for me, I was in graduate school at the time. And, you know, what happened was at home, I felt that he saw me as as sort of an abject failure, right? I like to talk about like, you know, in a sentence, right? If it was sort of not blank enough, right? It's always
1: that way. I remember with my ex, I was so skinny. I was like, I looked anorexic and probably was borderline anorexic at the time. Because I was like, well, I'm not skinny enough. And I remember being so thin. I knew that I was way too thin. And I remember one day he had gone off on, you know, just yelling at me. And I looked, I said, well, I won't ever be thin enough, will I? And he Mm -hmm. goes, no, you won't. That was a gift because Mm -hmm. it was like, okay, he actually admitted it. I will never be enough, whatever it is. Yeah. It'll never be enough. I can never fill the hole that he has and he will never stop trying to control me and blaming yeah. me for things that I never entered my mind to do. Yeah. And so I think it's a very common thing and most of the time it boils down to the same thing of you will never be enough not enough. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I would like, try to prove myself, try to be better, try to, try to do more, try to be a better mom, try to, to, to praise him more, try to mm-hmm. look pretty, try to fit in the little box that he wanted me to fit in. Mm-hmm. And it was prison. It was mm-hmm. hell. Mm-hmm. And I would rather be, I remember by myself as a single mom, not knowing how I was going to pay my rent for this tiny little apartment. I had lost everything, all my savings, my car, Mm -hmm. my first motorcycle, everything. And I remember being the happiest I had been in a long time because Mm -hmm. I was free. Mm -hmm. That's so powerful. They're not going to change. We have to keep doing the best for ourselves, And that does build resilience when you can take a step forward every day and say, I'm going to have a little bit of courage." to stand up for myself. I'm (laughs) Mm going to have some courage to get out of this, or maybe that day, it's just courage to pick up the phone and call somebody and ask them for help. That's huge. If we can ask for help. Yeah. So you coach people and Mm -hmm. you work with leaders. You don't just work one-on-one with people coaching them. You work with companies, Mm -hmm. corporations, and you teach leaders how to be resilient. And mm-hmm. I would love to know mm-hmm. the process, like if you go in and you say, okay, because I know you have five things that you teach mm-hmm. people on how to be resilient and mm-hmm. strengthen their resilient, because I talk a lot about a resilience. I'm just dying to know, mm-hmm. I listened to one of your interviews and I was like, okay, I can't wait to get to the point of what she <laughs> says about what are those five things. And I'm like, oh, so I'm dying to hear him and share it with the audience about what are the things that we can do every day? Because right now, you know, I'm not sure this podcast won't air for a little while. And I pray to God that we are out of where we are right now. Right now, when we're recording, y'all, we are quarantined. We're stuck inside. My mm-hmm. office is in my little home office right now. I was telling... Dr. Taryn, I've got sticky notes all over the house. Recording, please be quiet, family. Recording and process. That's right. And I hope that we're through this quarantine. But good Lord, all of us are going to need some tips, as many tips as we can to be resilient. Because there are going to be a lot of us that are going to have to reinvent ourselves. We're going to have to pull up our bootstraps. We are going to have to get gritty and get through this. And I would love to know, how we can do that. Tell us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, part of this goes back to the question that you were asking earlier, which is what was sort of that moment when I got interested in resilience? And despite the challenge that I've faced personally, I like to say that it was really my patients that taught me about resilience, my brain injury and spinal cord injury patients, people that had sustained a neurological injury that taught me about resilience in the first place, because what we saw was you know they were coming in to the outpatient clinic after we'd seen them in the er or the icu and we made a determination about what their prognosis was going to be and then we'd see them in the outpatient clinic and they'd be doing better than we thought not as well as we thought right but like rarely were we really kind of like hitting that target right of like giving people accurate information and so you know what we did is we mined a whole bunch of data in this academic teaching hospital and we looked at you know how different kind of demographic factors, if you will, influence people's rehabilitation outcomes, right? And so we found things like if you have a neurological injury, if you have brain injury or a spinal cord injury, having a dedicated caregiver, you know, somebody who's keeping track of all the information, make sure you take your medication, get you to your appointments, right? That wow. dramatically enhances, right? Kind of the positive trajectory of your rehabilitation. Whereas if you've got small children in the home, right? We all know those of us that have had, had or have mm-hmm. <laughs> small children in the home, they take a lot of work, right? And so mm-hmm. that often kind of diverts resources away from the person. Okay, having- but I have to ask you. Yeah. So for me, it was the opposite. Okay, tell me more.
1: Okay. So for me, not completely the opposite, but I have an incredible husband right. who basically was my caregiver when I came home from the
2: hospital. Oh, the see, hospital. I always wanted to know this about your story. I don't know this about your story yet. Yeah, well, I I, was, I didn't know where you were in life when the injury happened.
1: Yeah, we were newlyweds and oh I God. had a two-year-old. We got pregnant on our honeymoon. So Ruby had just turned two a month before. And Mm -hmm. I was in the hospital the first time for about three and a half months. And when I got Mm -hmm. out, my husband became my caretaker for a little while because I had Ruby, who's two, even though she was a little bit of a handful. And my oldest daughter was a teenager at the time. She was 15. Mm -hmm. And that is what actually helped me. Mm -hmm. It's what got me up in the morning. Mm -hmm. There would be days I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to get through the day. Mm-hmm. I'm in so much pain. How am I going to mm-hmm. do this? And I would just hear her little voice and I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, I got this, whatever it takes. When I was in the hospital, I couldn't see her because I was in ICU, but they said, if you can sit up in your wheelchair, we'll be able to roll you out. You can go see your daughter. So that was my motivation. That was my inspiration. That's what pulled me through. Yeah. So I think it can go both ways. Yes, mm-hmm. it's hard work, but that's work. And that purpose is what I needed to get me going and get me out of my bed. And I love that. They're my biggest inspiration. Yeah. I love that. What an incredible story. But I think to what you're saying is like, yeah, mm-hmm. if, if we have the help and support mm-hmm. and uh,
2: yeah, to get yeah. us
1: through, it does, it makes a difference, the positive yeah. support.
2: And after, you know, I was working in the hospital and I completed my education and my fellowships, I thought like, okay, so, you know, this is so interesting, right? Someone has a neurological injury, and then we kind of know, like, what are the facilitative factors that are going to help them heal, right, and create a more positive, call it rehabilitation. And then, you know, we also knew a lot about the factors that detracted from people's rehabilitation. And I started to think, well, what about the rest of us, right? Because, you know, based on what we were saying earlier, we all experience challenge. And not just one challenge in our life or even just one challenge at a time, Mm -hmm. right? And so I started to think about this concept of resilience and I thought, well, that sounds really powerful. I wanna know more about that. So I looked it up in the dictionary, as you do, right? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't understand it. You know, something, the definition was kind of circular and it said to be resilient (sighs) is to demonstrate resilience. You know, and I thought, well, what does that mean? What are the tangible ways that we harness this concept. And so I started doing qualitative research, right, as someone who sort of grown up on psychology and neuropsychology and research. And I thought, well, let me just start doing qualitative research. And so I started asking people a really simple, but what I thought was a really powerful question, which is think of a time when you've effectively addressed a challenge. You know, what did you do to effectively address that challenge? Do you want to answer that question? I we love can- that.
1: Yeah. Well, I know for me.
2: Yeah, tell, for, me, tell us
1: for you. Yeah, I had to do it. It wasn't just, okay, I was stuck in the hospital bed. I went from being this elite athlete, owning a business and having a successful business at that, to all of a sudden I'm in a bed with bed sores. I'm completely bedridden and I'm being told that I'll be in pain for the rest of my life. And it'll never be the same. I'll be permanently disabled. I was crushed. I was devastated. And it wasn't just what I had to do physically to learn to walk again, but it was what I had to do mentally and spiritually. And it was a long process. And I had to really first get down on my knees and pray and ask for a higher power to help me through it. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, I don't have a higher power. I don't believe in that. I believe that there's something bigger than me. I couldn't do it on my own. Mm Mentally, I had to start doing things to shift my mindset, Mm -hmm. to really shift my perception, the way I viewed things and started focusing on what I could do and what I did have instead Mm -hmm. of what I couldn't do and what I didn't have. So I got grateful. I counted my blessings, mm. whether you call it, you know, hunting for things to be grateful for or looking for the silver lining. I wrote in my journal every day, a list of things I was grateful for. I prayed. I physically had to have a lot of endurance and I had to get gritty and I had to at first suck up the pain and just continue to cowgirl up every single day. But then I had to learn to Acknowledge and embrace my pain Mm -hmm. because you can't keep sucking it up because your pain will always show up and it demands to be heard. Mm -hmm. So I had to really learn to listen and accept, and then I can take action steps to move forward. And so it's a long process. And the thing is, it's not just that I did those things and I'm fine and I'm great, everything's good. I have to wake up every single day and be willing to do the work. And I always say your hard work puts you where your blessings can find you. And it takes a tribe of people to help you along the way. Because I couldn't do it on my own. I needed accountability. I needed cheerleaders, man. (laughs) I needed like people to be like, girl, you got this. Keep going. Girl, you got it. Because there will be plenty of people that will try to pull you down, even though they may not mean to along the way. But I had plenty of friends that would come over in their own way and looking from their perception and they would say, Oh God, what are you going to do? You can't be a trainer anymore. Ooh, I don't know how you're going to be a mom. You can't even walk. What are you going to do? And you have to have a solid foundation so you can combat those kind of comments. And my own craziness that I had going on in my head of, Sure. Limiting beliefs, and so I believe that's something I have to do every day. Is the minute you have those limiting beliefs, what can you do to combat that? Mm -hmm. No, and Mm so it's a Mm. every day, it's getting up and showing up for yourself every day. I love that.
2: Oh, just wow! I feel like every single thing you said was like a little nugget of gold. Thank you, you know, yeah, everything that you've done is so powerful was really struck by your point around. It's not once and for all, right. Mm -hmm. It's not like, and I'm I'm still learning and
1: I'm still learning. And that's why I was excited to have you on because I love learning, especially from you. You've studied this. And so I'm like, okay, let's let's hear it. Let's hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you've interviewed a ton of people and asked them what they did. What is the most common answer that you got or what is something that you can say that percentage wise, most people said that they did this specific thing to be resilient? Mm,
2: It's a really good question. I haven't looked at my data in that way because it's qualitative, right? It's about, you know, coding the qualitative data, not quantitative, you know, where they filled out a survey. But what I can tell you is in your story. I heard all five. You said all five of the practices. So I'll take really? them back. Yeah, you hit all five. Oh, so. did I leave the
1: one important one out that I always leave out, which is rest? Well, you did not have
0: Because that's
1: what I always leave out. <laughs> and I'm telling you, the universe screams it at me all the time. Places, things I do at my husband, because I teach PACER, which is perspective, acceptance, community, endurance, and I had to make sure I wanted to call it pace, but rest Mm -hmm. is so important for resilience because we have to allow that time to recover. And I'm usually full throttle, man. I just yeah. like, go. I just want, enter- right. I have friends that call me the Energizer Bunny. I just want to go. And people are like, How do you live in chronic pain? And I'm so passionate about life and supporting mm-hmm. others to achieve mm-hmm. their goals that I love going. And so my husband was always like, R, Amberly, you left out the R of pain.
0: <laughs> like,
1: we went horseback riding and the instructor we're all on horseback and the horseback rider is screaming we're on the beach and he's screaming slow down amberly slow down and i'm mm-hmm. like everywhere I go amberly slow down when mm-hmm. i just recorded my audible book uh excuse me could you slow down please just uh, so i am like mm-hmm.
2: so did i leave out that part of- you might you 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 might have just glossed over it initially when you went through, but you know, we came back and we really hit on it in a bit in a big way. We're learning, right? Yeah. We're learning. Yeah, we keep learning. There's so many things I want to say. What I'll say quickly before I say the practices is rest is so profoundly important. And you know, I think we're in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic and. You know, here in Philadelphia, we're starting week two of going from non-essential businesses and schools, you know, to only life-sustaining businesses. And now today was the first day of the lockdown, right? Where you're supposed to be at home and not go out. And, and it's um, week two. Doesn't it feel like week yeah, 25 yeah, like, million? Yeah, like day 837, <laughs> yes, right? Yes. Captain's log, you know? And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's tough. But you know what? We're also hearing about sort of the ancillary positive benefits of this rest, you know? And I know you and I were talking about Jungian psychology and Carl Jung, and Carl Jung had this theory, if you will, of the collective unconscious, right? That we as humans are all collectively intertwined and connected. And one of the ways that we're connected is through this collective unconscious, right? That we all are deeply intertwined and there's part of me that feels like maybe we all needed like a big global timeout like a reset i think we
1: all needed a little let's just do a reboot but you aren't getting it so we're going to slowly shut you down a little bit Mm -hmm. more a little bit Mm -hmm. more now no no, really you have to stay home Mm -hmm.
2: and you know i think your point about rest speaks not only to people individually, but really on a planetary level. You know, I think about all the leaders, right, that I was coaching and am coaching and working with. They actually all have, you know, the same concern, which is they're all exhausted. They all have way more to do than they can possibly do in a single day. Folks are flying all over the country, all over the world. You know, when we travel, it lowers our productivity. Then they feel behind. There's a zillion emails. Nobody's getting enough sleep. We barely see each other. We don't have time to eat, you know, all the things. And so that rest and that coming back to center and finally having time for ourselves, you know. And you and I talked about, too, kind of going back to the abusive relationship piece. You know, what happens in abusive relationships, one of the ways that the person who's the aggressor controls right? In an abusive relationship. And I'm very intentional, right? About not using the words victim and things like that, because I think, you know, language is power and language creates our environment. But the person who's the aggressor in their relationship, you know, they control things by making your world really small and, you know, crowding out essentially the other kind of positive relationships and hobbies and experiences. And I know for me, like my own life was in a way I was being like abusive to myself in my life. Uh huh. We talked about that and it's so true. I was crowding out of my own life, the life that, you know, I wasn't cooking for my family because I was too exhausted or I didn't have time. So we were doing takeout and every day I was thinking through, I'll only sleep four hours and then I can get all this other work done. And I'd either be exhausted or sleep through my alarm and feel behind, but there was mm-hmm. no in yep. between, mm-hmm. right? Everything and, you're describing
1: is what I did. I'm like, I was lucky to get six hours. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just interviewed Mae Musk today and we were talking and I said, Yeah, I've been getting up every day. You know, I set my alarm and she goes, Why don't you try not setting your alarm? And I was like, Ooh. You're like, May I feel Musk...
2: Mae Musk. Well done, you. Well done.
1: Yes. When Mae <laughs> Musk talks, I listen. We take notes. Yep, that's right. And yep. so I was like, huh wow, yeah, maybe I'll try that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know if I could do that, though. Oh, Okay. Yeah, baby steps. Baby steps.
2: Just try it as an experiment. I always it say when I work, me with, out. My, when I work <laughs> with my clients, you know, you don't have to do it every day. We'll just try it. We'll do one time as an experiment. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the five practices, real okay, quick, let's you, you said all of them. Um, so the first one is vulnerability. And you know, the way vulnerability came up when I was doing my research is allowing our inside self, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what our internal process is, to match the outside self that we're showing to the world, right? Mm-hmm. That's how I would define vulnerability. I yeah. love that. That goes with my acceptance piece of PACER. It
1: does. Yeah. It does. And I, I love think- talking to you. Keep going, I love girl. <laughs>
2: So it fits with it perfectly, right? And it's this idea. And why is that resilient, right? It's resilient because when we're trying to maintain two selves, when we're trying to maintain how we feel on the inside and then show the world a different version of ourselves, right? It takes a lot of energy. It takes Mm -hmm. a lot of energy to be, you know, incongruent, right? As we would say in my master. So when you align those two things, you you save your energy, which is important, right? When you're Mm -hmm. in pain or you're going through other challenges. And then the other piece of that is I think this is really key for us too, right now in this you know moment of global pandemic and coronavirus, is when we allow our inside self to match our outside self, when we show people what's really going on for us, then we can get the help and support and resources that we actually Need.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: What do people and say? I'm really grappling with something right now. I'm really struggling, and people can come forward and help us. And we know that there are so many times the saddest stories, right, are when people are on the brink of taking their own lives, mm-hmm. and there's such a disconnect between what's happening for them internally and what's happening for them externally. And they were just out at a party the night before, you know, and then they take their own life, and people are like, what? And that's a very extreme example, but there
1: is- Well, that my stepmother was that way. She, I lost her five years ago Mm. to suicide and Mm. it breaks my heart,
2: you know? We can be incredibly savvy about hiding this internal part of ourselves. And it's frightening. It's frightening to going back to our It's exhausting. (laughs) It's also exhausting. It's exhausting to live a double life. I did
1: it after my accident. I did it for- a while and it is exhausting. And I once you accept what's going on, where you are on your journey, it's like, oh, it's a weight off your chest. It's freedom because you're mm-hmm. like, okay, the gig is up. I yes. don't have to pretend anymore. i yes. can just be me. Yes. And it's okay. Now I can yes. take steps to get better.
2: That's right. It's a very much like the truth will set you free moment. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have said, you know, Taryn, why did you want to tell the truth about your diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder? And, and why did you want to tell the truth about, you know, being in this abusive relationship? And and I said, because I got so tired of hiding. Mm-hmm. I got so tired of trying to keep part of myself, you know, again, word apropos for where we are right now. Like I was quarantining part of myself, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. keeping it sequestered away. So so that's vulnerability, which you spoke to. You also spoke to the second practice, which is productive perseverance. So productive perseverance is the intelligent pursuit of a goal. And it kind of has two components to it. One is maintaining the mission, right? Mm -hmm. And the other is knowing when we need to pivot and when we need to adjust. And a lot of people ask me, this might be your question too, you know, how are grit and resilience related to one another? And grit is to maintain the mission, kind of half of the practice of productive perseverance. It's staying the course, it's putting our head down, it's going after the thing, no matter how hard it gets, like when you're trying to, you know, rehabilitate after a really difficult injury. And then there's also course corrections along the way, right? Where we say, you know what, the market's changed or the environment or the landscape. And so I need to adjust. and go. Which ahead. that's what I'm doing right now. It's a lot of pivoting, a
1: lot of change going on right now. And I think a lot of people are really trying to figure things out. Like, well, we'll see, we'll see what's going to happen. What's going to happen with clients, with businesses. I know for me, I'm pivoting on my course. Doesn't feel right. And I think a lot of times we really need to listen to our gut. And because totally. our gut doesn't lie and listen to that. And this time is a perfect opportunity to be still and listen, to stop and just listen and connect with our soul and our hearts Mm -hmm. and pivot on some things if we need to pivot.
2: Yeah, I love everything that you said. And what you've done is you've teed up the third practice for me in the most beautiful way, better than I could have said it, which is the third practice of particularly resilient people is connection. It's first connection with ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Trusting our gut. I love how you said that. Listening to the still small voice within ourselves, not allowing that to be drowned out, right? And then also the connections. So the internal connections that we have, but then the connections that we have externally. And so, you know, you talked about the communities that you created around you, you know, to support you and the communities that you still have today to support you and, so being able to find that sense of connection to ourselves, to deeply know ourselves, and then to also be deeply connected with people outside of us, right, who play a supportive role and there's no the kind of reciprocity.
1: Mm-hmm. I love that.
2: Yeah. And it, it, now it's it's more important than ever. I was talking to a couple of friends and, you know, when you think about survivalism right you know you think about somebody like out in the woods with like some flint and they're like starting a fire and they've got like a bow and arrow like Katniss style from the Hunger Games oh yeah, yeah. we
1: watch Naked and Afraid that tv show <laughs> we're all idea. about Naked actually the tv show Survivor the producers called me to ask me if I wanted to be a contestant on Survivor
2: really oh you gotta do it no I was like
1: hell no. hell no I spent real life trying to survive for a long time I do You're not like, need to do it
2: done that. I've been there
1: I've done it I don't need to be on tv doing it I did it already thank you but no thank you I think I'll sit down at my dinner table and have dinner and not try to hunt my food
2: but yeah yeah you'd be so good on that show though seriously you would clean up <laughs> no one would ever vote you off the island i don't know somebody told me that everybody vote me off so no. <laughs> i would have an alliance with you i'd be like Amberly, and i are cool and then i'd find out that i was leaving but i would never vote you off the island you oh like so i like you
1: girl oh my I god
2: i wouldn't be able to imagine my island without you <laughs> oh <laughs>
1: <laughs> so i'm taking notes over here i've got vulnerability
2: Wow! Connection. You just took notes from May Musk and from me. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I feel so. I feel so honored.
1: <laughs> I'm the. One, oh my, I'm honored, girl. Like I'm May honored.
2: Musk levels. <laughs> I'm gonna tweet this. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for those of you that are keeping track at home or taking notes, we're on practice number four, which you also spoke to, and it's the practice of gradiosity, which is a made-up word, because I really wanted to capture what I was hearing from people in my qualitative interviews around the power of gratitude, which you spoke to, and the power of generosity. And you know, gratitude is all about, in the midst of a challenge, being able to see the good in it. There's lots of really good research, as I'm sure you know, and many of the folks listening, that when we keep a gratitude journal like you did, it rewires our brain, right? We have this level of neuroplasticity in our brain where the neurons can rewire and make new connections, and we can even grow new neurons. Say that four times fast. And and so when we have a gratitude journal, we start to look for what's right with the world as Mm -hmm. opposed to what's wrong with it. And so to be able to see in the midst of our challenge, even if we wouldn't have chosen that challenge, right? I wouldn't choose to have a stalker again and come down with two decades of PTSD and you wouldn't choose to be in a motorcycle accident and have gone through what you've gone through. But given that that has happened and it can't be reversed, right? Being able to see the good that's come from it.
1: Mm -hmm. I can sit here and talk to you. (laughs) I never would
2: have imagined, you know, that
1: I would be doing a podcast. And the best part of my whole journey is the connection and meeting other people. It's the best part, you know? Yeah. And so as I sat in a dark hospital room, there was a moment when I thought, okay, I have a choice here. I can go down that road of despair where I can do whatever I can to start thinking differently. And that's when somebody had brought me a little journal to the hospital. I wrote down, and I think, you know, I didn't know this as a kid, growing up in the South, you know, you're taught manners. And we always wrote thank you notes for everything we got, if it was a gift, or if it was a kind gesture, we always either made a phone call, but we always wrote thank you notes for gifts. And so for me, I had a lot of people that were bringing me food or flowers or gifts to the hospital. Mm. And a lot of times I was so drugged up from surgery after surgery, after surgery, I would write down in my journal who brought me what, because I didn't want to forget to write them a thank you note. Mm. And I noticed as I was writing down who came to visit me, what nurse saw me that day, that it was really shifting my thinking to, instead of staring down at my leg Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: wondering if today was the day they were going to cut it off, I was thinking about, wow, isn't it nice that my friend Karen brought me chocolate? Mm -hmm. And I sure like that nurse Dorche. Mm -hmm. And you know, Wow, look at the view I have out of the hospital room. It's a beautiful day. I don't get to go outside, but I will someday. And wow, it's so nice that this person brought me flowers. But all of a sudden, I was filled with gratitude. And little by little it became a practice. And I would write down every single day. And that started out from my mom teaching me to write thank you notes. And so I am big on thank you notes for my kids if they get gifts got to write them a thank you note. And they don't always like doing it, but Mm -hmm. it teaches them. And in fact, every night, my daughter, we get in bed and cuddle every night. We have a big glass jar that sits on the nightstand and it says gratitude jar. It's actually, my girlfriend has a company called gratitude glass jars. And she actually sent me a jar and we have it on the nightstand. And we used to talk about what we were grateful for every day before we went to bed now we actually write down what it is that we're grateful for. And we put this little note in the jar and you go to bed on a positive note, even though there's crazy stuff going on in the world, what's the best part of the day? We write it down Mm -hmm. and then we wake up and I get to write my journal, what I'm grateful. for. So it's really good practice. Even if you don't have a set schedule right now for somebody who's listening and you might not have your usual schedule right now. It's really good to get in that practice of a routine Mm -hmm. to help you mentally cope with whatever adversity you're going through right now.
2: I love everything that you shared there. And I would reinforce what you said in two ways. I'd say one, I think gratitude is a way of taking back control of our environment. You know, we're going to feel like for a period of time here that we've lost control of our Mm -hmm. mobility, which has been a fundamental human right for us in the United States and many other countries around the world. And so, you know, when we engage and I love how you shared your practice of gratitude because people can do just that. It's not difficult. You don't need anything. Right. And it gives us a sense of control back, a semblance Mm -hmm. of control where we look around and we start thinking about what's going right instead of what's going wrong. And to your point earlier, it's also a choice and there's power in choice, right? We also are gonna be in a place, in a moment where we get to decide how we want to think about what's happening to us, the meaning that we are going to personally make of this situation. And something that I've been talking a lot about is finding purpose in the pause. Because I think when I look at countries like Italy, and when I look at other kind of areas of Europe that are a bit of ahead of us on the flattening of this curve, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but you know, we're not talking about two weeks of schools being closed. We're talking about a quarter, right? We're talking about kind of figuring this out for at least 90 days and a lot of kind of high density population areas. And we're going to feel like some of our choices have been taken away. And so our opportunity from a resilience standpoint and from a gratitude standpoint is to say, what choices do I still have and how do I exercise those? And one of those choices that we have is our mindset. We got to guard our mindset judiciously And making the choice to scan our environment and say, even though I wouldn't have chosen this, what is the good that I can find in it? Mm -hmm. Because there's plenty of good in it. There's plenty of good. Oh my goodness. I
1: have finally been cooking home-cooked meals again. Mm -hmm. My family's glad. Well, they're glad for now that I'm home. But no, my family's (laughs) glad because I've been traveling for the past two years. They're like, look, no one's
2: going to vote you off the island. We established this earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but they're happy for now. I'm home.
1: My daughter and I have been gardening. We've been playing games. We've been on the floor wrestling. My husband and I work out together. I put together some exercise stuff in the gym or in the garage downstairs and we made also it known as the gym, gym now. <laughs> right. Known as Man Cave. I've kind of taken over. It's the gym now. <laughs> but there's a lot of good. And mm-hmm. I've been able to take a breath. And it's really, I think it's going to do for a lot of people. Is you said, I love how you said, find purpose in the pause. Mm-hmm. My girlfriend actually has a pause symbol tattooed on her wrist. And I keep thinking, I got to get me one of those pause tattoos mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to remind me to pause, to remind That's me to rest. Great. This is the rest. This be still. The rest be to still. Be still. And really think about what is important to you? Mm-hmm. What is your purpose? Right. Are you living your purpose? That's you right. know, yeah. what are you doing to live your purpose? I think we can all take a chance, have a moment to really focus on that
2: And I think what's going to come out of this for a lot of us, what I'm hopeful about is, you know, really kind of centers around the fifth practice, which is the practice of possibility. And I think we've all been so busy and all had so much going on. We've been going at this kind of frenetic pace that it's this incredible moment to think about what's possible in our lives and mm-hmm. I know so many people and I know you know so many people who are really taking a step back and we're taking stock of our lives and we're taking stock of the way that we live mm-hmm. and the food that we eat and the interactions that we have and we have this you know beautiful sort of unanticipated moment to say is this the way that I want to live my mm-hmm. one wild and precious life mm-hmm. is this is how I want it to go because the possibilities are endless mm-hmm. and about our own resilience, this practice of possibility, being able to see opportunity where we may not have seen opportunity or being able to see a way to achieve a goal or get to, you know, a place when an obstacle or a roadblock is thrown up in our path. And it's also about dreaming. You know, I have a good friend and I think you know him as well, Brian Johnson, who does the Dreamer series. And he's all about Helping people achieve their dreams, and you know, it's really easy to forget about what our dreams were, what we wanted to, we wanted to be. And so, this idea of purpose and the pause can also be looking at what are the array of possibilities for my life, and do I want to keep doing what I've been doing because I have a choice, and I can do something else, and there's other possibilities, other dreams that maybe we pivot toward.
1: Oh, that's beautiful love that. Thank you so much for all that you have shared. And for all of you that are listening, you can find her on Instagram at Dr. Taryn Marie. But I want you to tell everybody where they can get your books, where Mm. they can find you, the best place to find you. So can you share that with everybody? And it'll be in the show notes too. So if you're listening and you're like, oh no, I missed that. It'll be in the show notes. Don't worry. But could you please tell
2: us? Yeah. So right now, I think we can all ask ourselves, what is the contribution that each of us can bring forward in this moment? We all have at least one thing that's incredibly valuable to contribute to our friends, our family, our communities, our planet right now as we take this pause with the virus. And, you know, for me, having studied resilience for the last decade, I felt like, you know, wow there's really no better time to be talking about resilience than where we are right now. And so I'm uh, in the process of publishing a book called The New Rules of Resilience, Thriving in a Uncertain and Virtual World. So it really takes the five practices of particularly resilient people and applies it to, you know, what happens when things don't go your way or things are really different than what you had imagined. So we're going to have a, a pre sale up on my website probably in the next month or so. www.resilience with a C, resilience-leadership.com. I'm on Instagram a lot, Facebook quite a bit, and I look forward to seeing you all there. And you'll know it's me because you know I will have posted something on Amberly's page about what I loved about what she did. (laughs) (laughs) You can also find us that way because we're having our online (laughs) admiration society.
1: Yeah, I love you, girl. Thank you you so much. Thank you. This
2: was so much fun. I love doing this with you.
1: Thank you. I just appreciate you sharing your wisdom, and thanks for taking the time to be here and can't wait
2: to share this. Love you. you. Love you. And (laughs) let me just say, thank you for creating all of this because you are helping so many people, you know, you having the bravery and the courage to go through what you have gone through and then to somehow, and I don't know how you do this, but I'd like to learn. I'm going to stick around (laughs) to have the reserve that you have at the end of the day, to be able to help as many people as you help you know, being in pain as you are, I think it's just incredible. And you are such a beacon of hope and light for anyone who's going through anything difficult, anything painful, whether it's emotionally or physically, you're lighting the way for people and you give us all hope that life can get better and we can continue to pursue our dreams and make a difference no matter what happens. So thank you for that. Thank you so
1: much. Well, I think It helps when you have a purpose and connecting with other people. And when you can help someone else and be of service, that is a gift to me. You know, it makes me feel good. So I'm happy to be here. I love doing the podcast, still figuring out technology, to be quite honest with you. So it always scares me a bit, but I'd say jump through those fears, go for it, get out of your comfort zone and I'm doing it. So here we are. Thank you for your kind words. I appreciate you.
2: I appreciate you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us this week on the True Grit and Grace podcast. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And it would be so awesome if you rated and maybe left a review. That would help too. And also, I have some exciting news for you. If you are ready to learn a mindset that will get you through any challenge, ready to really transform any limiting beliefs and finally find the wellness routines that work with your lifestyle and keep your body healthy and thriving you're in the right place you're hearing this for all the right reasons because it's your chance your chance to join right now it's a 12 week course it's so much fun because we're going to go live in a webinar With plenty of time for Q&A, it's called Your Unstoppable Life Mastermind. And there's going to be a daily mantra and a like-minded community to support you along your way to reach all those goals. So head over to amberlylago.com forward slash mastermind and sign up now. Okay, have a great week and I hope to see you in the mastermind.